Welcome to the Liberty Equality Data Podcast, a podcast series aiming to foster discussions about the value that individuals can get from their data. We invite industry leaders and pioneers to talk about the most recent developments in different industries, the opportunities with the user-held data, and an open data market. Today, we're talking about neuroscience with Emily Radate, the founder and CEO of Samfire Neuroscience out of Oxford. And we're talking about how we can use neuroscience and electric stimulation of the cortex to tackle such things as PMS. We're also talking about Emily's background as a depressions researcher, many of the things that she's found by looking at the research and the data conducted, and a lot of the overlooked opportunities with tackling issues for nearly half the world's population. All right, this is an exciting one, so let's dive right on in. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining me today on this podcast. It's wonderful to have you on. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right into it. Um, why don't you just kind of give us the 10-second the version of, of who you are and what you're doing? And then my first question to you is that you've been studying neuroscience at Oxford. Um, how did that happen? How did it, you get into that field? Sure. Thanks very much. So, I mean, in brief, I'm a neuroscientist traditionally trained in academia. So I've been there for the last seven to 10 years. Um, so I'm a Lithuanian by background and then went to Harvard for my undergrad, where I first started working with neuroscience and anthropology at the intersection of the two. And while I was doing that, I also worked as an emergency medic. So kind of always was at the on the research side, but also on the clinical side. And as I was working more and more, got especially fascinated by psychiatry and the ways that psychiatry can be transformed, especially through data, new technologies and new solutions for people that they can integrate into their everyday lives. And so through that, I decided to delve deeper into it and went to start my master's and my PhD in Oxford. Um, so came back to the side of the ocean um, and have re really been in the area since. And a couple of years ago, um, based on my interest in kind of new technologies, something applied, um, something focused on equality and transforming a lot of the, translating actually a lot of the research happening in the labs into something that people can use. I founded Samfire Neuroscience, which is a company focused on translating brain technology, um, brain technology for uh, women's health needs, especially neglected women's health needs. Yeah, and let's go a little bit more into that, especially coming from like, um, let's call it not, not just academia, but just like solutions out there. Um, neglected women's need. Can you kind of open that up a little bit? Like what does the research out there look like? And, um, you know, what are the gaps? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that I think is very much underappreciated even in the field. So to give you a little bit, a couple of anecdotes. So I was, so by academic training, I'm a researcher in brain stimulation and depression. That's the field where I started in. So essentially what we're looking at is novel methods of treating um, what's called treatment-resistant depression, so where depression was not cured by at least two different uh, types of antidepressants. Then people oftentimes undergo brain stimulation. And to this date, it's not still clearly understood who it's going to work for, why, how quickly, and through what exact mechanisms. And so I was delving deeply into, you know, how do we personalize depression care um, and go deeper into that. And obviously, depression is predominantly diagnosed for women, but it affects women and men both. And as I was going into it, of course, I never even thought about the fact that there might be some gender disparities in there, just because when you think of depression, you just don't think of gender in the first place. Similarly to how you think about most conditions, you think of cancer, you don't think of gender, you think of, you know, lung disorders, you don't think of gender. And I was in that research field kind of thinking the same way as well. 
And then as I started noticing a couple of patterns in the women around me, I started realizing that it's very interesting that quite a few women experience these extremely strong symptoms before their period that to me as a depression researcher looked extremely similar to depression. So we're talking women that, quote unquote, we would say they're PMSing, but the symptoms that we observe is a woman who is extremely sad, who's potentially extremely anxious, who potentially has mood swings and is unable to make decisions and may be extremely fatigued. And that actually overlaps exactly with the symptoms oftentimes seen in people with depression. And so as a depression researcher, I was like, huh, that's super interesting because there's these women that suddenly start feeling very sad, predictably, every single month. There's nothing that you can do about it. And we just kind of dismiss it, which we no longer do to depression um, far and beyond. Um, and yet we just let it go. And then those symptoms disappear as their period comes. So that was initially extremely intellectually interesting. And I started um, trying to understand that better. And I was like, surely if we have so much data around the treatment of depression, if we just discarded the data on men and looked at the data on women, we can see how the menstrual cycle impacts our mood and our proclivity to particular mood disorders. Like when are we most vulnerable? And I saw literally zero data about this. Like now, and this was two years ago. Now we see some evidence emerging. And in fact, I'm giving a talk at Stanford in a couple of weeks talking specifically about this observation, but now increasing labs notice that essentially if you look, if you don't take clinical trial data and segmented by menstrual cycles for women who are of reproductive age, you're missing extremely valuable data around the way that they absorb medication, around the way that they will respond to any form of treatment, and around the way that they, they experience vulnerability to particular treatments. So now this is called, and I know that I'm kind of talking a bit around the topic, and it's because that's where the state of the art is. We still don't know a lot of things. But now we've recognized this concept called PME, premenstrual exacerbation, and what that means is essentially that before their periods, women are the most sensitive to any form of mood disorder or pain disorder or whatever. So for example, if you're a woman who has a history of depression, you're most likely to get it triggered again in that premenstrual period, right before your period starts. If you're a woman undergoing depression treatment or anxiety treatment, your symptoms are likely to worsen around that period. So if you start treatment during that time, you're almost going against the wave. And so that's super interesting because obviously if we're working with such sensitive things like people's mental health, people's physical health, you have to take into consideration every factor that can predict predictably modulate the risk for it. And yet we still don't do it. And so that got me super interested into that. And since then, you know, we've tested our device in clinical trials and I've been working a lot with researchers across the world trying to understand it better. But I will say that in, in to like circumnavigate around your question is that still most trials, and if you look at most clinical trials with medications, with brain stimulation, with any form of treatments, will not take this data into consideration. And a similar example would be menopausal state as well, like women with perimenopause, which starts about 10 years before menopause, so young women of like 40 years old. Um, and without taking in this data, I just don't think we can reach the next level of psychiatric development for women. It's fascinating in a way, because especially kind of being here in Silicon Valley, then one thing that, that investors always stress is the size of the market. And you have effectively like almost half of the market, which would be by any definition, a huge opportunity for, for companies. And it's just incredible how biased the field must be that there aren't those that would have tapped into this like until now. Um, at the same time, there's also kind of different types of things, like you mentioned, for example, with depression, that that it's only starting to become something that's let's say a little bit less taboo than, than it's been. 
So maybe there's also kind of that type of thing that, that plays in um, to the overall development and where we are just generally. But let's focus a little bit more on the device because I think that that will open up the discussion a little bit more to talking about like how the brain works and what we know and what we don't know and so on and so forth. Can you describe the, the device itself and what you guys are doing with that device in more a little bit more detail? Sure, so the technology is actually relatively well known in Silicon Valley. So it's called transcranial direct current stimulation or TDCS or transcranial alternate current stimulation called TACS. And so essentially what it does is it stimulates, it sends a weak low electrical current uh, through different parts of the brain, one part of the brain for the cognitive symptoms and one part of the brain for pain. And we have combined the two together to specifically address the symptoms of PMS and menstrual pain. So we will be the first regulated medical device globally to address both the mental health aspects as well as the physical uh, pain aspects associated with uh, menstrual health care. But and I think the way that we fit into that picture and you outlined some very interesting questions about the market is that PMS care still has a lot of stigma around it and we're still figuring out language around it. But the way that we're seeing ourselves fitting into this market and fully transparently, we see our market as two types of categories of women. One is patients and one is performers. So there's a lot of women globally, probably about a fifth to you know a third of women of reproductive age who have some form of reproductive condition that affects their quality of life. Some familiar ones could be uterine fibroids, endometriosis, PCOS. All of those are essentially very relevant to women at least once a month and severely impact their quality of life. Then there's the other category, which is performers, which I'm expecting to see a lot in Silicon Valley which may be women that may or may not have a diagnosis or a diagnosable condition, but regardless, they're high-performing women who are very conscious of essentially the contribution that they can make intellectually in their workplace, and they want to understand their bodies better and control their bodies better. And if you have something fundamentally around your everyday life that every single month takes five days of your productivity or you being on top of your game away, that's a huge cost for a lot of those women for whether that would be their personal life or their professional life. And so we're trying to provide a solution that kind of recognizes that mental health aspects that can be really challenging to deal in the workplace require a technological solution and shouldn't be just skimmed at or force women into hormonal-based cycle control solutions. There's so many different directions that we can go. So I'm just kind of thinking, thinking to myself a little bit. There's been so much of these new types of, call it like performance enhancing um, wearables that have come up. Um, like there are companies that are using continuous glucose monitoring for athletic performance in a way. And just kind of thinking about the theme that you guys are working on, you know, those seem very niche. Like if you're using continuous glucose for optimizing athletic performance, I mean, that that feels like a drop in the ocean as a compared to like five days of productivity a month uh, or five days of intellectual performance and so on and so forth. So this isn't a small thing that we're optimizing for. This is like, you know, a huge part of people's lives. When working with these, um, I know that you've been working with the device and researchers and so on and so forth, but uh, when you've been working with the device and testing the device itself, how do people kind of experience that? And, and what are kind of the, let's call it like the test users that you've been working with, um, what's the experience that they've been going through and how are they reacting? That's such a good question. And actually one where we've learned a lot of what we didn't expect. So again, I started as a researcher and clinician being very much on the ground. And one thing that was very important for me is that people see the clinical impact of what it does. It's not woo-woo. And I think similarly to what 
I mean, there's a lot of performance enhancing practices, but the problem that I see with a lot of them is that a lot of them are focused on understanding our bodies better. That's huge. Understanding our bodies better can lead us to make better decisions. But for us, in the end, sometimes you need an actual solution. Like sometimes you can understand your body. And for most of the people who use our device, they understand their body and it's crap for five days a month. So like they need an actual solution for it. And so when we first went to market, driven kind of by that, aim to show the clinical significance and to show the clinical value, we recorded a lot of clinical metrics. So we were asking people to rate their pain out of 10 and then show how that decreases. We're asking them to rate their productivity, brain fog, decision-making, all kinds of cognitive um, kind of measures. And we showed actually that it clinically improved, which is what we knew all along because we had clinically tested it. But then we asked people to record videos of, you know, what do you remember about the device? What does it feel like to use the device? And what was most shocking is that no one spoke about the pain level or the mood level or the productivity level, whatever, or other, yeah, kind of those anxiety and mood metrics. But instead, people were like, this is what I can do because I don't feel that pain and because I don't feel that brain fog and the difficulty making decisions. So examples were like, this is the first time that I've been able to go to the gym while on my period. This is the first time that I actually didn't cancel all of my meetings with friends because of my PMS. Or this is the first time I actually didn't do remote work because I felt well enough to go into the office. So it's very much focused on action and doing and getting things done and committing and following through rather than the technical kind of how much did my pain decrease? Because then we kind of went a level further and we're like, so why, why do you mention the things you do as opposed to just those metrics? And people were like, well, my pain feels like a nine out of 10 to me. But when I speak to my friends, they say that their pain is insane. So then I think that maybe my pain is not that bad, actually. So maybe I'm on a seven. So women are extremely self-judgmental in the way that they rate their pain and mood symptom. And because of that, they're extremely not objective. And so they don't know when they need something. And now that they see the effects on what they can actually do when they don't have those symptoms, we see a very big difference. And so where that has pushed us to go is really to show women that you know, your life could be a little bit more even. And, you know, we're not changing the way that you menstruate. It's still natural. You just don't have the side effect of menstruation. And because of that, there's no reason why you would need to have this like constant um, kind of cycling up, ups and downs in your performance as well. So how different are the experiences that people have? Because like, I'm just kind of thinking to myself that when you have a group of like many different individuals that are going through these, like you mentioned my pain. So how different is like one experience to another and what's kind of the scale that you've seen like are there some where they're like you know this is absolutely like game changer and then there are some like well this doesn't work for me for x y and z yeah absolutely i guess the right way to start is there's a couple of sources of variance in the data that we deal with one is that pms symptoms pms it means premenstrual syndrome and it stands for a wide range of symptoms. Actually, it's 120 plus symptoms that are recognized that could happen to women before their period starts. So it's everything from low mood anxiety, mood swings, difficulty making decisions, brain fog, fatigue, um, and then menstrual pain. Um, but one thing that we do notice is that because those conditions of PMS can differ so, so much, you're already starting with so much variance in the user sample. And plus, on top of that, you add the variability in response to a treatment. So there's actually a lot of things interacting with it. 
However, if you think fundamentally about what our technology does for, and let's focus on PMS symptoms only, because pain tends to be a little bit more uniform. But for PMS symptoms, the reason we go with the umbrella term is because the main reason that people feel those symptoms is because essentially there's a disconnect between the frontal cortex, which is the top level management of the brain, and the limbic system, which is essentially the core management of emotions. So in women during their luteal phase, so the 10 days before their period, one thing happens, especially if they have strong PMS symptoms, Essentially, the part of their brain and their frontal cortex that is supposed to help them interpret their emotional signals coming from the limbic system, the association between the limbic system and the frontal system essentially goes awry. So what happens then is your limbic system, let's say, feels sad. And then instead of your frontal cortex being like, look, the reason you're sad is X, Y, Z, and therefore you shouldn't feel that sad. Instead, the frontal cortex doesn't give that signal. And so you're feeling overwhelmingly sad or pretty much depressed. And then Another time your limbic system feels a bit anxious and your frontal cortex isn't there to tell it what the source of anxiety could be. And so it's extremely anxious. And then it may feel happy and it's extremely happy. And you can see how just that disconnect can lead to this wide range of observed symptoms, whether that be extreme low mood, extreme anxiety, whether that be mood swings, whether that be fatigue, because you're constantly switching and trying to understand how you feel. So of course you get tired from that, whether that be inattentivity because of it. So essentially a lot of the symptoms are behavioral manifestations of a pretty core thing that happens in the brain, which is essentially that two parts of the brain are not talking to each other during that time. And that's shown in kind of neuroimaging studies. It's shown in EEG studies. And we have documented pretty well that disconnect that happens. And that is very transient and temporary, specifically in that luteal phase. And so what our does, it essentially restores that communication between the frontal cortex by stimulating it and the limbic system, which provokes those emotions. And so because of this, that if we return back to the variance question, people's symptoms are very different. But for most people, regardless of what they call it, it's actually because of that same thing happening in the brain, which is the disconnect between the frontal cortex and the limbic system. And now when we restore that balance, we usually see for most women that, you know, the effect is essentially proportional to the severity of the problem. So for example, the way, the right way to think about this technology is that it brings you back to your 100%, but it probably won't bring you to 110%, which is the way that it has been advertised in the past. However, for women with PMS and menstrual pain symptoms, their 100% wasn't there, you know, three years ago, like for people with depression who don't even remember the last time they didn't feel depressed. Year day to day, you're like, I remember yesterday, I felt like a normal person. And today I'm feeling extremely sad. So women recognize that return to 100%. And that's a very distinct feeling. So actually for our users, because I mean, again, we've only had early adopters so far, but they're extremely happy because they know what they feel like at their 100%. And they know that they're not at that 100% for about five days on average every single month. And because of that, they feel the return very efficiently. And we have seen people not being very satisfied with the performance. And usually we've seen that for people who actually don't have very strong symptoms. So they're like, I don't even know if I'm happy because I don't even know if that's what I expected. But for people who have severe symptoms and who recognize the impact, we've seen I mean, actually pretty uniform responses. Like for some, obviously symptoms matter more like pain. For some, it's more mood. For some, it's decision-making. So it does vary. Um, but on average, if people have recognized the problem, then they can see the return to normal. Yeah. And I love this kind of aspect that you mentioned earlier as well, that it's on one part, it's about understanding your body, but women understand their bodies quite well. But it's almost like this empowerment that you have then choices in terms of what you can do. And then obviously those choices are different from different people, different people have different preferences and so on and so forth. I'm talking about the frontal cortex and the limbic system, just out of interest, because you've also, I mean, you worked as a depression researcher. So this kind of 
um, disconnect, is that similar in other types of contexts outside of PMS as well? Because I know that the device itself, I mean, it's technically quite horizontal. I mean, it could be applied to many different things. Absolutely. And in fact, this technology is already reimbursed and applied very commonly for the treatment of depression and chronic pain. So where we're innovating is really bringing it to women's health in particular. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's a good question. So for PMS and PMDD, PMDD is a severe form of PMS called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, where people actually have clinical depression that disappears with their period coming on. And if you look at the brains of people with PMDD, so that severe form of PMS, and brains of people with major depressive disorder, so what we call classic depression, and you try to classify them into two separate groups, a machine learning algorithm can't do it. So it cannot differentiate, if you take the brains of women with PMDD in the luteal phase, it cannot differentiate them from depressed patients. Now where the asterisk comes in and where I think it's shocking that no one realized how interesting of a research topic this is, but if you look at women with PMDD, for seven to 10 days before their period, their brains are indistinguishable from people with depression. For the rest of the month, their brains are indistinguishable from those of healthy people. And that's insane. That's repeatable every single month. And their brains look statistically significantly different, like those of, a, of someone with an actual underlying condition, which they do have. And so I think that's super fascinating as a playground of essentially predictive depression. That's, that's absolutely fantastic. Um, but it's also shocking that, you know, um, like, is, is it really the case that we haven't had this data before? Because I would imagine that for a lot of, you know, people that are interested in data, then they would see this and they would be like, hey, there's something going on there. We need to figure out like, you know, what's there and what can we do? But is it really that this data just hasn't been surfaced? I would put it two ways. So there's a difference between data and research and large data and small data. So the type of data that has been out there, so there have been a little bit of research done that essentially was able to elucidate the early stages of understanding that PMDD is very similar to depression. And that happened in 2004. That's the first study that I could really find on the topic that actually ran EEG and was able to show the difference. But since then, the studies are far and in between. So like the second kind of meaningful study came out in 2009, then another one in 2015. And then there has been 2020, 2021, 2022, 2023. We're now very much on the cusp of like frequency really increasing on the topic. But if we think about data, the women who have PMDD far and beyond know what's happening. And there's an amazing organization operated um, called IAPMD, the International Association of Premenstrual Disorders, that has over 20,000 women as part of their members, if not more. And all of those women, so in order to get a diagnosis of premenstrual depression, you need to record your own data. So actually it's a diagnostic criterion to show that every time before your period, you get depressed. And the way you do it is literally by tracking your symptoms around your period. However, there are actually no good apps out there to do it, which is kind of shocking because it feels like an opportunity. And some people have created apps, like there's one that's popular called Me vs. PMDD. But now I've spoken to hundreds of women with PMDD, and all of them run their own Excel sheets. So all of them have extremely detailed Excel sheets of every single symptom that has happened to them over the last 10 periods. And they keep such good and minute data around their lives. And everyone has created their own individual Excel sheet. And that's the part that's shocking to me because the state of the art standard is that they give you a paper form and they're like, oh, fill it out every month and kind of track your symptoms. People are like, we're more modern than that. They create an Excel sheet, but it's still not very centralized. And so where I'm getting to is that individual women have extremely detailed data around this. However, to date, we have not really condensed all of that data into one and seen what are the most common symptoms? What is the trend? Are there phenotypes that we can distinguish from it? Are there, is there advice that it's kind of cross-sectional? Are there 
you know, kind of different learnings that we could get from big data if we just got all of those Excel sheets and translated them into some, you know, kind of data frame that we could actually utilize. And I think that's fascinating to me because oftentimes I think women have been framed as not knowing their bodies, which in some parts is true because on average, the scientific community doesn't know their bodies very well, but two, as not data savvy. And when you look at these women who have fought to get a diagnosis, who have recorded their bodies so, so well, it's really a wealth of knowledge. So Yes, the scientific community is really where I've described it to be. Like, I think it's in the very early stages of recognizing where that is. And I mean, this prospect is very scary for pharma companies who know that the absorption of drugs is different at different phase cycles. And if they start going in there, that means that the dosage probably needs to change to, for women because at some part of the cycle, they'll absorb much more of the drug than others, which is extremely irrelevant for like motor symptoms of Parkinson's, et cetera. But the other aspect is like, we actually do have a lot of that data from a community-driven approach. And if anyone's listening out there and is looking for the next big opportunity, I think community-driven data gathering for women's health is still a very untapped one that, you know, probably my next business will be in there because I just think that it's a huge opportunity not seen and one that's very much needed. Yeah, maybe a little early to talk about next business yet, but, you know, um, I, I love that. But I think this is also like where we got connected originally was really around kind of this aspect of individual data, that how could we essentially... Um, We'll do a couple of different things. Like one, how could we help individual women understand effectively how they make use of technology like yours and how it essentially benefits their own bodies? Um, and then there's like the second aspect, which is like the entire research and what can we do with like the individualized and the aggregates and, and all of that. This is something that maybe just opening it up a little bit that, um, did you remember what some of the hypotheses that we had when we started working like, you know, what could we actually kind of, what type of data could we utilize and how could that relate to the use? Um, do you want to talk through that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the key things that we're interested in, especially as we learned, as I mentioned before, that people were less interested in actually seeing a score of how much better they feel but they were more interested in seeing what they can do because they feel better. So we were super interested in essentially the impact of using this form of brain stimulation to alleviate symptoms and how that would improve people's performance. So whether that would be running, lowering their baseline heart rate, um, the ability to essentially do more reps of exercise. So essentially a lot of things related around physical performance, which is a very good proxy for essentially your state of the body. And if you feel better physically, you're likely to be able to feel better mentally as well. And then I remember us thinking of a couple of more extended hypotheses, like just looking at the frequency of what people do. So for example, if you have good data around whether people are exercising in the first place, one of the common symptoms we know is that women around their period just don't exercise. So kind of seeing whether that frequency changes, so kind of behavioral change. So there's this principle in neuroscience that the way that the brain works is essentially there's some things that happen in the brain that leads to the emergence of a thought. So then you have something and you're thinking and you're consciously aware that the thought has emerged. And then finally, when a lot of thoughts come together and they kind of make sense, we do an action based on them and that's called behavior. So essentially there's a hierarchy that like behavior is the strongest form because it can show that preceding that behavior, there was a coordination of effort between different thoughts that was preceded by a coordination of effort between different brain cells. And so because of that, seeing any form of behavioral change is the kind of gold standard of what you want to do with any form of intervention. And so for us, we're stimulating the brain directly. And for us to see that that impacts what people do is the gold standard. And that's actually exactly what we wanted to test because we saw people saying that now just because they got this brain stimulation, one thing led to another, and now they're exercising more, they're going to see their friends more, they're feeling happier because of it. But feeling happy is still at that thought state. 
exercising more and going to see your friends is that that behavior state. And so we were very keen to test some of those hypotheses around, do they actually do what they say they feel they do? And how about other things? I, I imagine that impacts also like how you sleep and then, you know, your proxies for stress and all these things that are a little bit more on autopilot, but I imagine that shows up directly there too. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, a sleep one is is a good one because a lot of women's PMS symptoms actually insomnia are usually associated with anxiety as well. So we were hoping to show an improved sleep as well, uh, which we think is an indirect result of essentially reducing the back and forth that's going on between the, the frontal cortex and the limbic system as well. Yeah. Especially when we work a lot with data, then it's always kind of thinking about like, how do we bring it back to the individual? Like, how does the individual... like? Like all of this is great. It's inte- intellectually incredibly interesting, but how does that actually benefit the the individual? And I think there, if you yeah. can quantify that, if you can show the link that because you're wearing the device, then this is how you behave differently when you've actually been going through this this regimen. And that's going to be different for different types of people because, I mean, you mentioned there's 120 plus symptoms associated PMS in general. Then, I mean, if you think about that, and then you combine that with different types of context, different types of baselines, different types of situations, I mean, you're going to have so much variance. But if you can start looking at an individual and you introduce a change and then behavior changes, I mean, that's a powerful indicator for the individual themselves that, you know, something something is working and something is actually leading to, you know, something else in that sense that, for example, maybe you're able to be more active. That's a really, really cool thing. That's one of the things that got got me personally really excited about this because if you have such an immediate action that you can take and you can quantify a very immediate change in effectively the benefit that the individuals get, I mean, that becomes incredibly impactful and incredibly real um, and demonstrably so because then people can see that, okay, well, compared to the past, then this is how things have changed for me. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually am very grateful for the personalization point because that's definitely where we want to push it as well. So at the moment, let's say the way that we recommend using our device is for once a day, just 20 minutes for the five days before your period. And that's kind of the standard treatment protocol that's going to get approved and is going to be out there. However, one of the reasons I was very excited about the personal data angle as well is oftentimes the people who record their own data, whether that's you know with an Aura Ring or with an Apple Watch or a Garmin Watch, is they record that data so they could make adjustments based on exactly, as you say, things that make sense for them, whether that's through personal inference or through advice. And for us, one thing that we realized is that there's quite a few users among our users who have endometriosis, so extremely severe pelvic pain. And a lot of them noticed that actually using the headband a couple more sessions, so between seven to 10 sessions, relieves their pain completely, whereas five sessions kind of attenuates it enough, but like it's not enough. So they need a couple more sessions. And then we noticed that some women who may have lighter pain or lighter PMS symptoms actually Actually, they're fine having just two sessions or three sessions. And in fact, the more you use the headband, the easier each of your period gets as well. So we're very keen to see that data to essentially help women also determine like, look, you see how your brain reacts after a single session. Can you titrate your own needs depending on what you need and dose yourself as well, the better you know your body. So your baseline can start as everyone else's. But over time, maybe that means that you need one session per month and you can go on with your life without those disturbances. So we're also very excited to kind of pioneer that development of personalized protocols as well. But that obviously we cannot do that as a company top down. And it needs to be driven by people who are responsible for their own data because we cannot make those decisions for women. And my personal belief is that too many decisions have been made for women. And that's why we're lacking so many options on so many different conditions. And I'm just bringing it back to one of the first questions you asked me. 
how do we define a neglected need in women's health? And the way I define it is that there is, it's all conditions within women's health where there's not one solution for each category of solution to address it. So for example, at the moment, let's say we have PMS symptoms or severe symptoms of PMDD. The only way to address it is by avoiding periods altogether with contraception or by taking antidepressant medication in broad terms. Both of those are pharmaceutical. So there is no non-pharmacological option to address them. Same with postpartum depression, same with perimenopausal depression, et cetera. And so I think that everyone deserves to have at least a couple of options to choose from, because as we know, everyone's body is different and not everyone can be on hormonal contraception not everyone can take pharmacological interventions etc so it's about generating options in places where options are lacking cross-categorically there's a couple of things that, that i wanted to highlight like you mentioned this um this group of your early users uh, and people that you kind of had in the, the the broader network that have recorded a lot of their symptoms almost religiously kind of uh, over time. And that's something that that we've also been fascinating with um, just across different types of use cases and different types of populations that there are a lot of people that are very interested in, you know, understanding their own physiology and understanding how their own bodies work and so on and so forth. But that's been one area where, I mean, the tools themselves, they, they absolutely are lacking. Like, we're getting some of these wearables that can be observers, like they can record some of the things that you're you don't have to write down yourself. But at the same time, I think that that's also something that um, kind of, what should I call it? It kind of just shows you the demand for actually getting a little mm -hmm. bit more sophisticated with how we actually understand ourselves and how we, you know, how we drive our own um, our own development. But you also mentioned this that you know making decisions on behalf of women definitely, but just on behalf of users in general. Because from your background as um, researching depression, a lot of builders um, don't really appreciate, or maybe they do, but that's a big difficulty once you get into the actual application and what the screens say. Because for example, if you think about like uh, sensitive different areas, like for example, with PMS symptoms or depression, um, then I mean, how you actually guide the individual there's a lot of delicacy as it comes to essentially making sure that they have enough to make meaningful decisions on their own, but at the same time, not, let's say, overburdening them with some of this data. And I'll give you one example, yeah. and I'd love to hear your reflection from kind of the, the area that you're in. But we have one uh, company that we're working with, and they deal with obesity. And they found that essentially removing the numbers from obesity, so removing the weight, that itself has a huge benefit because when people see the weight, they fixate on the number. But at the end of the day, it's not really the number that matters as much as it is the behavioral change. So by just removing that number from every single interface, including the scale, they could actually see that their results were a lot more impactful. So I imagine that in what you're doing also, there's a lot of subtleties that go into like how you present this data in a way that is empowering without it being, let's say, um, confusing or too complicated for the individuals. I love that. And I find that reflection super interesting because exactly like, even if the ultimate thing you're trying to affect is a number, thinking about it proactively may not be the thing that drives change. So we have seen it in different ways. I think a couple of spots that are and an insights that have been most impactful for us was the fact that women really like to put, not women, everyone likes to put labels 
in order to understand what's happening to them, especially if it feels abnormal and impacts them significantly. So for example, in the beginning, we were using the language of like, oh, if you feel low mood, anxiety before their period, use our solution. And then we had a lot of in-depth interviews with our users and with women. And they were like, honestly, just call it PMS. Everyone around me calls it PMS. And they say that like, I shouldn't be dramatic because it's PMS. And so by embracing PMS as a clinical term, we actually got a lot of women to feel like it was legit enough to seek a solution. So by building a solution and acknowledging that term, we made a lot of women feel like they deserved a solution for it, which wasn't the case before as well. So I think for us, language matters a lot around recognizing a, essentially a sense of community and putting a label onto things. That was one aspect of them. The other one that we learned, um, I would say the hard way, is that initially our language was around women struggling with these symptoms and therefore they need help. And then we started talking to a lot of women and they're like, we don't like this savior complex that you have of like us being maidens in distress and needing to be saved by this magical device. Instead, we want to feel like, no, I'm actually the boss bitch taking this thing and it's helping me live my life to the fullest. And I'm better than those other women who don't have this device because I am taking control and I am trying to do something for me out of self-care and self-love. So that was super insightful for us, especially for me coming from the clinical field where people with depression want help. And so it's a very different language because actually most of the women we deal with are healthy women. They just really struggle during that one time of the month. So it's not necessarily for numbers, but it's very much about how we present what we do, how we present the data, how we talk to women. And we actually so far found that um, the most helpful numbers we could use was just making women not feel alone. Like, look, you're feeling these symptoms. Over 90% of women feel that way. You're feeling pain. Over 30% of women stay in bed all of their period or something. And we found those to be, they're not personalized numbers, but they're numbers that make them feel that whatever they're feeling isn't weird. And normalizing the discourse around our topic is really important, but I'm sure we're going to learn a lot like you have learned already through, you know, kind of your partners and colleagues about how we communicate the numbers. But we're very much acutely aware that women feel strongly about, you know, taking control. And there's also like this observation that, you know, those that like the, the funnel, um, the funnel in terms of preventative care in general, and the things that you can yourself do, that that funnel and the amount of people there is far bigger than those that actually end up in the clinical setting. And I think this is like, this is a generalization, but in general, like we see this across the board that some of the data that you get from wearables, I mean, is it clinical grade? Of course not. Um, is it good for spot readings? Of course not. But is it good for understanding a baseline and baseline changes? I mean, yeah, it can be. And for that, then you can kind of, if you can yourself have a little bit of a compass in terms of where your body's going, that can give you essentially a lot of insight that you didn't have. Like unless you were actually recording all this data on spreadsheets, which most of us aren't uh, still, then I mean, you wouldn't have that. So I think that that's a really, really exciting thing that we have going. I agree. And I'll push that discourse even further. Like on the one hand, you're saying that, you know, it's helpful data, even if a lot of those people don't end up in clinical settings. But I actually would wager that I think the fact that people can now track their data has transformed the way that healthcare providers need to provide them data. Because historically, you would see this woman in, in our, you know, kind of field of interest, you would see a woman coming in with her Excel sheets, trying to show it to her doctor over a 10 minute appointment and trying to convince him that there is a trend there that like, there's actually something happening. Like, look at all those, those days, this repeating. And now a lot of the women have those trackers and they're like, 
look, my heart rate, my performance, my ability to do all of those things changes. Look at the beautiful graph with a repetitive, almost entrained signal in it. Like that shows us something. And the doctor can like look at the graph and see it right away, which they cannot oftentimes. And so reducing the burden on patients to communicate what they're feeling and understand that better. And essentially that pushing the discourse with the doctors further, I think is extremely helpful. And I think it is already transforming the way that healthcare is delivered because doctors can no longer ignore the data that patients can bring in. They can be like, no, that's fake news because literally it's the most accurate news we have, even if it's not great for, let's say, spot checking or whatever uh, the accurate clinical grade assessments would be. And it's also got like an inevitability to it because, I mean, whatever physicians actually, however they feel about this data, then I mean, younger generations, they have all the devices already. They're very mainstream. Like the Aura Ring itself is... It's, I mean, it sold, what, a couple of million devices, and it's a new ring at the end of the day. Yeah. So, I mean, this is definitely inevitable that you'll have more and more of this data. The question is, like, how do we empower individuals with this data in a meaningful way? I wanted to conclude our discussion because, I mean, we could keep this going forever, but I could, wanted to conclude with one thought, which is, and kind of just get your take on this, that especially as a neuroscientist, um, I kept the discussion away from there, but going into the brain and how the brain works, that, that's fascinating, but we'll leave that for another time. But especially as like the entire AI boom has happened in the last six, seven months, I mean, a lot of AI systems are in part designed on the human brain, which is, in my view, slightly comical because we understand so little of the human brain to begin with, so that we're modeling after something which is slightly, you know, an unknown to us. It's, you know, it just speaks to kind of how early we are in these. But how do you think about kind of AI in your context? And what are some of the, let's say, things that you're the most excited about? For sure. I think that's a fascinating question. And I think there's so many, we're still at that nice nexus of change where there's so many different directions that this could take. Uh, my thoughts and immediately where they go to is... Um, one of the big challenges we saw working with data and science um, and brains and women's health is how women oftentimes don't share the data of what they feel because they, they've never been heard before, whether that be their pain symptoms, their mood symptoms. You know, now we're working a bit with menopause and postpartum as well. And so one thing that the wearables have empowered is essentially us being able to collect that data and almost validate that feeling from women. Where I think AI can take us next is to really empower women to learn from that data and take it forward and to know that they're not alone. So I'm thinking specifically of like trainers that tell them how to exercise around their menstrual cycle and around their data. I can see them taking it to nutrition and how they can eat around their menstrual cycle and the phases that are happening, how they can include interventions in their life. So almost like personal trainers around their life as well, which I think seems might seem like a small thing, but it is still very poorly understood. And doing that with the data of a lot of women that we can now access, I think is super exciting and interesting. The other aspect is how it can enable research. So at the moment, we're still talking about PMS as a syndrome. And usually you, we, as a scientific community, use the word syndrome for anything that we don't really understand. So we're like, Women have these a bunch of symptoms before. We don't really get what's happening. Let's call it a syndrome and move on. And so where I think AI will take us is really helping us disentangle those symptoms. So, I mean, for that, the precursor is having large data sets um, and understanding and trying to learn the biological underpinning trend of why women experience particular symptoms, but then being able to build from that a plausible biological model or maybe multiple ones that we could test to better understand why one woman might be getting low mood three days before her period and ex extreme fatigue the day before, and another woman might just be anxious for three days in a row. 
if we do that, then I think we can build essentially a much better future for women. So I think one is in improving research and understanding these conditions deeper. And two is in essentially improving clinical outcomes for women, which currently are not taken into consideration. Um, I can imagine that there's a lot of other paths that this could take, uh, but these are exciting. They seem translatable. And I care a lot about intellectual engagement, but I also care a lot about it being translated and actually changing people's lives. And I think that the AI boom can have some potential in doing that. Yeah, and I think it's completely obvious that, you know, when you kind of think about like all the specialized agents that that we're already seeing in the market, like, for example, somebody that creates a fitness coach, I, I mean, it's completely, it, it's not even personalization, really, like it would just be a specialized Cohortization. Agent. Yeah, exactly. If, if we can power them based on like your, your own habits, your own sleep and so on and so forth, that's great. That's personalized. But at the same time, if you have an expert that's just essentially trained for you know, the the market that you guys are serving and then just as expert in recommendations. And then after that, within that expertise, it personalizes based on you. I mean, that that seems like a completely obvious thing. It is, but if but but while we're dreaming about it, like what about if it took into consideration the drugs you're taking and the medications you're taking, you know, all of those things, which I actually think are completely forgotten because again, as I'm saying, the research just is currently finding out how much that matters as well. So even being like look, you shouldn't be starting your medication regime today, but you should start it in two days because actually if you take it over the next couple of days, it's not going to absorb. And if you overdose it, then it's going to be this quality or whatever. Like that's interesting. Um, and I mean, now I'm more intellectually intrigued than practically, but I agree. Sometimes the most obvious things are missing. And the fact that in 2023, we can be the first medical device for menstrual mental health, which is experienced by over 90% of people still shocks me sometimes. And it just shows you how underdeveloped this field of research is. Uh, the only direction is up. So a lot of progress to be made. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Emily, for being on today. I mean, this has been fantastic. So um, we'll definitely keep in touch um, kind of with the, the community and we'll post some things. I know that you guys have a lot of things coming up. So our community can also expect to see those going forward. But thank you so much. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you for joining this episode of the Liberty Equality Data Podcast, sponsored by Profina. At Profina, we're building a personal data cloud for individuals and developer tools to build apps that run on top of users' data. You can find more information about us on the web at profina.com. What topics should we tackle? Who would you like to hear on this podcast? If you have any suggestions or if you're interested in learning more, please join our open Slack channel, Liberty Equality Data. Until next time. Thank <laughs> you.